Hey everyone, welcome to Get Into It, where we do just that. My name is Jordan Rice. And I'm Amber, and today we're discussing the rise of anti-Asian racism in the form of violence. Um, on March 16th, the gunman orchestrated a series of mass shootings that occurred in three spas and a massage, in massage parlors in Atlanta. The gunman killed eight individuals, six of whom were Asian American women. Since then, the media has been covering the impacts of anti-Asian American sentiment. To help us have a conversation around this, we are joined by Alyssa. Samir. Hi, guys. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Um, Alyssa is my little buddy, my young <laughs> arts buddy. She is super, super talented, super, super insightful. And well, you can't see her, but she's Asian American. Yes, um, I am. That's, which is why she's helping us. <laughs> which is why she's helping us have this conversation. Um, something that's really important to Ambry and I, we've always been like, we don't want to talk over the voices of other communities when they experience something that's so personal. Right. So I'm, I'm so grateful to have you here um, and to have this conversation. Yes, thank you so much for just, oh. both of you guys are already so insightful and so perceptive with everything going on. Um, and it just means a lot to be let in on the conversation and to like talk with you guys on the podcast, so. Yeah. It says hate crimes against Asian Americans has increased by nearly 150% in 2020. Uh, 2020 was marked by the coronavirus, and I'm just assuming that that also emphasized the amount of anti-Asian violence in America. So how is this entire experience for you going from like we started seeing this uprising of something that I feel was always there but kind of maybe passed over right. um, to now what just happened in Atlanta this past week? Um, I think it's what's hard is that I feel like this crept up on all of us equally as someone who literally is Asian American. Um, it's, it's a different kind of racism and I don't want to like, single out the Asian American experience, but it's filled with, it's characterized by way more subtle everyday um, jokes and microaggressions. So it didn't come as a surprise when obviously our former president ended up being one of the first people to coin the Kung flu or China virus, I guess. And I think it says a lot of how our nation responded to that exactly a year ago. And people just kind of brushed it off, you know? This is how this is how our president acts. We roll our eyes because it's just expected. You know, but there was no there was no um overt outrage that ended up feeding into activism. We went straight into the pandemic and then eventually into Black Lives Matter and it just kind of fizzled out. And I think the interesting thing about that, of course, the president who will not be named on this podcast, um, four to five, <laughs> uh, when he, <laughs> he like stoked the flames of that, like the, um, the police officer in Atlanta who was um, doing a, I guess the press conference about this mm -hmm. case, well, it's not a case yet, but about this event, literally has social media posts from about a year ago saying like having a shirt that says like coronavirus imported from china like with all this like anti-asian um 
views and rhetoric on his shirt. And so it's kind of like the same stuff that happened a year ago that we all just kind of, and I agree, all of us just glossed over because, oh, that's just how the president is. We know he's just ignorant. That's Mm -hmm. just, it's just, we're going to pass over that. It's having impacts on something that happened literally a year later when this man is no longer in office. Right. It's Um, amazing what a year can do, I guess. And the, um, consequences of something that happened 365 days earlier can have so i guess we kind of already talked about it but if you have any other like to go deeper into this like how has the way america views asian americans motivated this act because you talked about it with the the jokes and just the glossing over that but i feel like there's a lot of disconnected or miseducation or lack of education around mm. the Asian community and their plight in America. Right. I, I think there's so much fear surrounding um, how we're perceived in America, historically, especially. Um, we, of course, know, like, the Chinese Exclusion Act of, like, uh, 1882, when um, it all began with just white people fearing Chinese laborers were taking jobs away from them. And there's, and yet there's this beauty, I guess there, I, I, I appreciate the fact that there, the people see this beauty, but then it morphs into fetishization and stuff, which we'll get into later, I guess, among um, women in particular. But I think there's this battle back and forth between fear and awe and and then it turns into hate, I guess. You hate, the America hates this feeling. And um, I think that was the root of the tax is what do you do with this hatred of this confusing and weird combination of these factors. Some people are trying to dispute if this act was racially motivated. Um, some people are also saying it wasn't misogynistic. What are your thoughts on that? This is not a single form of oppression. I think it's a network There, you have anti-Asian violence is also anti-woman violence. This act in particular was anti-woman violence as well. It's anti-poor violence because it's massage parlors that were specifically targeted. Um, And also there's rumors, I've been reading some articles that it's also anti-sex work violence as well, Mm. because we see a lot of that happening in those massage parlors specifically with Asian American women. So it's seriously a network, oppression Olympics of like just this network of all these things. And what what was especially misogynistic, knowing the background of the gunmen, who I'm not gonna name because I don't think it's important to know his name, you know, in this, um, historical event, I guess. He's not, he shouldn't be that important to where, but sadly people do have reports of his background and his childhood and stuff. And he in particular admitted himself that he was struggling with, um, I guess a sex addiction, a a sex addiction among, um, Mm -hmm. Asian American women. And he, he was a Christian and was battling with the issues of um, like his relationship was falling apart with his girlfriend because he ended, she found out that he was going to these massage parlors 
like frequented them. And he was battling between religion and this temptation, I guess. The Asian woman was his temptation. And to get, in order to get rid of said temptation, it's ultimately viewing Asian women as expendable. That was his solution. Being able to toss them away and no longer look at them, I think. And like, uh, oh, okay. I have this problem with the way, like you said, like you're not going to give his name. You're not, because it doesn't matter. Um, and that like, no, I'm not about to talk about your name, but they're, they're talking about his background and they're like, he's a Christian. It seems like they're doing, he's a white man. Right. And we didn't say that before. They're doing all of these things yes. to combat this atrocity that he did. Like, like you're like, he was a Christian and he was battling something and he was having a bad day. Right. And so he's into the bad day the right, quote, which mm-hmm. is a quote, which is a quote by again, that same police officer. Police he was having a bad day, yeah. and so you know he just this right. is how he handled it. That good old boy. An official right. press conference, like that was that thing that he officially said as a uh, law enforcement. I, I can't. There are articles day. out there that have to dive into the psychological aspect of this gunman in order to understand. Almost like excuse his behavior. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I find it interesting, right. of course, right. because the human psyche, like. <laughs> It's all so interesting, no, yeah. but though it's the fact that we know this would not have, this gunman would not have equal coverage of his childhood if he was not right. a white man. It's like, if I want to understand the psyche of a criminal, I'm going to take a psychology course and watch Criminal Minds. Like, I'm not, I don't want that. This is real life. And <laughs> right, then when you're talking right. about eight people are no longer here, six of whom are in the same demographic. And then you're going to say, well, it wasn't misogynistic. Well, it wasn't racially motivated. It just, it's like, it goes all, it goes back to that, how we as Americans have glossed over racism against Asian people. I feel that like as a whole, that in America, when people think of race, they always think of black and white, black and white, black and white, black and white. And they're so, because of the, we're a melting pot here, some by choice, some by Mm-hmm. force you you can't just address one issue there are so many issues and to discount like when you're playing oppression olympics like i think that's so stupid because you're discounting a whole group's invalidating their experience and the way that some people are like saying well it's just a it's just another attack it's just a mass shooting thing and like we know white men have a problem with this like we need to address these things and not give people a pass because they're white men. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, that's really what it's right. coming down to. And it's getting extra weird when they try to use mental illness as a, some way to, because like, honestly, if you think about it, the only time mental illness ever comes into play or people have like, try to talk about it and actually get serious about it is when these white yeah. men do these things. And so they scramble to find these disorders, these, uh, these things about them. them that have already been villainized. Right. So like, the disorders like bipolar disorder or like schizophrenia the things that have been subjects to horror movies so like this already has a negative connotation to it are you associating that with like extreme violence these people who actually have these disorders like they don't deserve to that to be associated with them and trying to link it to violence and 
it's just it's not fair there's there's people who live with these mental illnesses they don't deserve to be linked with these white men who as a as exercising their white supremacy that's really what got them there it wasn't just their their mental illness you know what i'm saying it's not fair to just make that right that's that's an excuse in itself kind of horrible i hate it well, I guess we can. <laughs> I'm going to get it on record. <laughs> the media's response. Uh, has it been appropriate um, talking about these families? Because, like, there are, like you said, several articles. Like, he's getting equal, if not more, coverage than the people that he killed. We're talking mainly media as in news, separate separate from social media. Like, like yes. separate from social yes. media, like mainstream news right. sources. Like, I don't want to name them, but we know the big... <laughs> I was literally going to start right. him, and I'm like, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think, oh, yeah. I think the media is doing an okay job. Um, it is mostly, we'll get into later, um, social media that's carrying the brunt of all of the work. Um, I think the media we've seen, mm-hmm. some media sources are abbreviating the victims' names Someone like gave an example, which is like the equivalence of saying like Beyonce being like beyond and then C, like period. Like that's what these names are showing up as because people Mm. are getting confused. Mm. Uh, And it's, I don't think it's justice enough because like one of the article, one of the news sources whom I personally read from all the time, once again, um, was focusing more on the perpetrator and stuff and his background, as we said. So I don't think they're doing enough. And yet at the same time, I also um, respect the privacy of the victims too. So I think it's, it's a fine line kind of. Can we talk about something interesting that you said is like um, the way that they're disrespecting the names of these victims and it might come out of i'm gonna say it comes out of ignorance when it comes to these Mm -hmm. like media like these news media outlets um i yeah there's i think it goes back to what i was saying earlier the lack of education around the asian community in america when these are a whole group of people that like contribute to our society make our nation what it is and then we all just are ignorant to how to say just like yeah. pronunciation mm-hmm. or just understanding um the uh the way that your name is lined up oh, different yes from, like, because the way we yeah, do it and, being yeah, like and i'm not gonna like i'm guilty of this too like i'm working on how to like learn that stuff and like making a point to learn pronunciation and to not excuse it well like, of course you know well and you're, yeah, and you're totally that's yeah. okay to make mistakes because like even I myself don't know the exact pronunciation of all of the victims and nor is it my job to because it's not my specific ethnicity kind of thing like I'm I haven't said it yet but I'm half Japanese and half Korean so um it's so funny because being East Asian American specifically i fall straight i always tumble straight into the chinese category um i'm always Mm -hmm. um for the most part when people make assumptions of me they think that i'm chinese first and foremost because once again the bad the historically china and america that's like all they see you know um but it comes down to when it comes to like names and stuff 
like being Japanese and Korean, both of our, um, in both cultures, our last names are always listed first kind of thing. So I also saw some uh, media platforms that were listing Park first when that is Park is a very like quintessential Korean last name. So it's not truly their first name, but they listed it flipped. But then other names were like listed like Western style, classic first name, last name. So that was a little bit awkward of a mix up, but um, there's so the amount of times though, my fellow Asian classmates are in school and like a substitute teacher comes in and you know, you always, I'm sure everyone has experienced to some degree. If you have an Asian kid in the class who has um, a name that's not American typical and is in their original language and stuff, they tend to have a substitute for it, which is your Justin's, your Kevin's, your like all of that. Yeah. And that laughter that occur that erupts in the classroom when um, the substitute teacher like gets that wrong, and then they're just like, "Oh, just just call me Kevin," kind of thing. Um, I think the er the erasure that we already experience in classrooms that's what's led to adults leading these um, newspapers and media outlets messing these things up. And we all just accept right. it. Like, like, we're all just like, well, that's, I mean, they, they tried, mm -hmm. Duh. like, you're a accredited news source, you have the resources and funds to get it right. Right. And what right. sucks is going back to people right. changing their names and having a more anglicized version is for the benefit of the ignorant white Americans, you know, um, mm -hmm. I personally there's been countless times in my life when I was like, oh, thank God my mother um, gave me a very American sounding middle name. My middle name's Mia, spelled M-I-A in English, so it sounds very normal, but it is Japanese. Like, me is beautiful and Oz Asia, so it's beautiful Asia, but obviously it doesn't sound like anything out of the ordinary at all. And I used to thank the heavens every single day that... Um, no one would butcher up my middle name. That was just a thing. And it's obviously, it's all at the mercy of, of ignorance in America, of people not wanting to get it right. And so instead you as the minority have to walk on eggshells around them. Yeah. Mm. That, yeah. Because I feel like the that, way, because like a similarity be between our two communities, like ours is, or the running joke is when you ever have a substitute in a black classroom, they're not going to be able to pronounce the kid's name. They're going to, like that Key and Peele sketch where he was like A.A. Ron, <laughs> uh, D. Nice, and like just like right. making fun of how white people, you know, typically white people come in and just don't know how to say it and don't have the right. desire to learn or to get better. And I think like, for me, I was always like, I wish my mom would have named me something real difficult because the way that I am, I'm like, I want to correct you until you get it right. Because I've always had this mm -hmm. thing like my name matters. And I was talking to my friends who are first generation American, one from her family's from Nigeria and the other her friends from families from Pakistan. 
one's last name is, you know, difficult. It's not Western typical. And the other, her full name, they just, people just butcher it all the time. And they're not hard names. It's just like a lack of wanting to mm -hmm. learn. And I would get so mad. I'm like, tell them how to say your name. Correct <laughs> them until they're done. And then I didn't think I really, like, I, I didn't think I got like, I'm the type of person I want, I'm a fight for it. And they're the type of, like, it's just also so demeaning to have to tell an adult as a child over and over again, that's not how you say my name, please just say it right. right. And it's frustrating. And it, and like, they shouldn't have to fight that battle every day when no one else right. is having to fight it. Does that kind of make you dissociate from your culture a bit when people refuse to just even acknowledge your name? Like, does that create this kind of like separate identity when you enter a school or something? Because I've always been interested in that because I don't particularly have an ethnic name or last name. This is actually interesting is when I was younger, I went to Japanese school and um, every Saturday. I hated it because obviously English is my first language and I had to speak Japanese there. Like I couldn't speak English and I had big time like communicating issues. But um, I bring that up because I carried two separate identities um, in Japanese school, not gonna lie, I ended up getting bullied and I didn't like recognize it until way later, but that's what made me dread going every day. And it's because I couldn't speak. And so I'd put on this extremely shy facade where like, you know, to avoid anyone talking to me point blank period, because I can't talk to them. And if I speak in English, I'm going to get in trouble. So the boys would like make fun of me, throw glue sticks at me. And one of the boys, and they're all, you know, Japanese or they're American born, still Japanese, or they flew from Japan because of jobs or something for their mm -hmm. parents. And I remember one of the boys I saw in one of my American schooling settings. And I think he was so taken aback at how like open and giddy I was and, and confident I guess it really shut him up Wow, <laughs> which gave me a lot of like pride I guess it's the one my one comeback but it, it it's it's more facades like that and carrying a different type of lunch to school being happy that I was given an authentic Japanese bento when I'm going to Japanese school or a plain sandwich when I'm going to American school that's the kind of facade so subtle it's nothing where you're like oh i'm gonna dress differently i'm look at me i'm like a new new person kind of thing it's subtle things like that that contribute to that facade i think you're talking about and i feel like that's also that's the type of mm, code switching mm -hmm. like it, it might like we might not classify that you know as code switching but that's a that's code switching um and of course, like you're not, we always say none of us are representatives of our communities, like right. the speakers of our community. So I don't, I don't want to ask you, but do like, <laughs> yes. I feel like that's from what I've seen and what my friend, my other Asian American friends have told me that's, they're kind of similar in that experience. And I wonder how that impacts it, right? Like the conversation that we're having now with this whole stop Asian hate movement, because I feel like this is the first moment where I'm seeing across the board, a lot of my Asian American friends and brothers and sisters, like, like be really vocal about the type of treatment and their experience in America. So I feel like it's the first time 
where a lot of them feel they have the power to do so. so exactly the way you put it the having the power and i was wondering if i was wondering if that contribute if that upbringing if a lot of asian americans have that experience so is that why we're seeing this now yeah and i think i think it's because also all of us didn't realize it too that's that's how deeply ingrained it is i think there's um way more of way when you think of racism there's so many more overt examples that we do see unfortunately in our everyday lives and activities and stuff but these you wouldn't initially um make equivalent to Asian hate, you know? I think when this hashtag first came out, I didn't make a big deal out of it. And I thought people were making a big deal out of it, honestly, because none of my experience I um, connected as hate towards me, you know? Um, that's, and that's also where we can get in much later about um, the crossover between stop Asian hate and BLM because um, it was like, is there room for both? Is Asian hate really such an issue kind of thing? And this, this is all coming from myself being Asian myself. Yeah. It's just, it took a lot of digging, big time digging to like bring it to the front and be like, no, this is valid. This is not anything that anything that your typical cisgender white American faces, like they would never face that kind of stuff. And so that's when you know that's not normal, you know? Right. What conversations or actions do you want to see from this tragic, 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 tragic event? Because it seems like we only see change when extreme violence occurs. That just seems like what it is in America right now. So what do you hope comes from this? I think given that the forms of racism we see um, towards Asian Americans is mostly your dialogue, your jokes, your microaggressions. That's how we're going to battle it. I think it's mainly talking, integrating the conversations in your everyday life. That is, in my opinion, the biggest weapon, I guess, for fighting against Asian hate. It's because I recently ended up talking to um, some very, very close friends and actually admitting to them there's there was an incident that was just lingering in my brain forever and ever and ever. And I just kind of suppressed it, kind of put it in a box for another day. Um, it was once again, when the pandemic was starting, um, my friends and I were laughing at idea of kung flu because obviously i was thinking like we were all thinking like oh it's funny because it's like kung fu but kung flu and i was surrounded by white people and we were laughing about it and i was the only one who left that moment taking that memory with me and feeling that awkward mm -hmm. dread from it and it was so hard bringing it up to my friends because it's like obviously they don't remember you know why should they because it doesn't really affect them. So having that conversation was a big milestone for me. And I, it's, I, I take all of this, all of these things are so personal. They're not 
Um, I think that's where it turned into everyone was like, oh, it's personal. It's personal. And then it became collective, you know, like, oh, this is the Asian American experience, mm. you know? So having those personal conversations with friends, calling them out and also, or just generally talking to them and being like, let's make sure we don't use that vocabulary or be insensitive to that. You know, that's in my opinion, the best way. And supporting Asian businesses and stuff. Uh, so many of them have the extra burden of xenophobia from the pandemic on top of it. And so you don't see, there are so many empty Asian um, restaurants and Asian owned businesses because of that fear of like, oh, you're Chinese. You're, did you just come from China recently? Like, I don't know, things like that. That was... I, I have nothing to add to that, so I, I'm going to try. I'm going right. to uh, take this episode out. Um, we were kind of talked about it earlier in the conversation. We are going to continue this conversation next week um, where we get into more of the response uh, that has been had between all minority communities um, because of this event and how we as a people need to unite and ally against Asian hate and white supremacy. Uh, we have information about the victims in the uh, description of this episode. We also have resource links. Like some people have GoFundMe set up. Uh, some people have just tools to educate yourself with. And those are going to be included in the description of this video. I mean, this episode. I always say video. This is a podcast. In the description of this, in the description of this episode. And I highly encourage you guys to like educate yourself because we know if you're in america the american education system is not going to educate mm -hmm. you in this way um come exactly. back for next week's episode Alyssa will still be here you can follow <laughs> Alyssa on instagram support asian creators um at Alyssa sanu uh she will also be linked in the description of this episode thank you so much for listening and do your best to be a better person thank y'all Thank you.